0: Hey everybody, it's Josh and Chuck, your friends, and we are here to tell you about our upcoming book that's coming out this fall, the first ever Stuff You Should Know book, Chuck.
1: That's right. What's the cool, super cool title we came up with? It's Stuff You Should Know,
0: an incomplete compendium of mostly interesting things.
1: That's right. And it's coming along so great. We're super excited, you Mm -hmm. guys. The... Uh, illustrations are amazing, yes. and there's the look of the book. It's all just, it's exactly what we hoped it would be, and we cannot wait for you to get your hands on it.
0: Yes, we can. Um, and you don't have to wait, actually. Well, you do have to wait, but you don't have to wait to order. Uh, you can go pre-order the book right now, everywhere you get books, and you will eventually get a special gift for pre-ordering, which we're working on right now.
1: That's right. So check it out soon, coming this fall. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works.
0: Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark, and there's Charles W. Chuck Bryan over there, and this is Stuff You Should Know, the uh, Dirty Dirt edition. That was the best best I could come up with, and I even had days to think of that, and that was it, Chuck. I'm (laughs) sorry.
1: Yeah, this is a cool one. You know, we're into gardening, so it's always nice to talk uh, earth biology.
0: Yes, agreed, agreed. And like I had a pretty, I guess I thought a decent idea about this, but boy, did this article open my eyes.
1: Yeah, and this, you know, we covered sand and Mm -hmm. we covered compost. Permaculture? Permaculture, like we sort of danced around soil. (laughs) We danced in soil. Yeah, (laughs) our toes are all dirty. But, uh, yeah, this is good to finally check this one off the old list.
0: Agreed. So, people are probably like, I don't know about this one. I would hope that it's been, you know, long enough. We've been at it long enough to just trust us. That if it sounds boring, we're going to find something interesting in it. And I dare say that that is going to be the case with this one too, Chuck. Well, I hope so. So, to understand soil, we have to understand what soil is, where it comes from, and soil is basically just worn down rock, just like sand is, right? I think we talked about in like our "Are We Running Out of Sand" episode that like rocks get weathered and kind of taken downstream all the way to the sea, and they get <clears throat> gently um, broken down over time into this very nice little beach sand and washed up on shore, and that's where sand comes from. Well, basically that is also part of the same process for producing dirt as well it's just weathered rock that's broken down into different um sizes that that are that that basically make up different types of soil that's one the main structure of it is basically just weathered rock of various sizes
1: yeah so you can you know wind can do that over time uh, water and obviously the combination of all of these is, is where you really get your money. Sure, money's worth. Sure, so you've got your wind, you've got your uh, your water. Um, mm-hmm. When you get weather uh, going on in your seasons, you get the freeze thaw cycle, which is a really kind of speedier way. Once that water gets in those little tiny fractures in the rock mm-hmm. and freezes and unfreezes mm-hmm. and cracks, that'll really speed things up. And then you get a little help from our. Uh, our little tiny critters uh, under under our feet.
0: Yeah, cr- tiny critters of all shapes and sizes from like microbes like bacteria and fungi all the way up to like prairie dogs and gophers. They're basically taking all this stuff and, and mixing it together. But the the stuff that they're mixing together is so you've got the structure of the soil from broken down rocks. But that's just one big component. You have to have life living among it, or else it's not going to do anything. It's just it's just dead. There's nothing to it. So um, part of the process of forming soil is taking those little gritty pieces of weathered rock and adding decomposing organic matter to them. And that's where we finally start to get to what we understand as soil.
1: Yeah, because once you have that, uh, it can hold a little bit of moisture, mm-hmm. and then that means little plants can grow those little plants grow they eventually die it's very sad for the plant and the plant's family <laughs> mm-hmm. but it happens to all of us and then those little plants that die they decompose and they're holding all that carbon dioxide in their little skinny stems and leaves and body mm-hmm. and that carbon dioxide stays behind and it's dissolved by water and then that forms carbonic acid which isn't you know if you want to throw a body in a in a barrel you don't want to use carbonic acid. No,
0: you're going to get caught still.
1: You're going to get caught. So it's not super strong, but it is strong enough to help break down all those little rocks and everything even more. And before you know it, you've got soil, baby. Yeah,
0: you got soil. So those decomposing, all that decomposing organic matter is full of like nutrients that kept the thing alive while it was living. And then all those little tiny animals and microbes, that eat that stuff, break it down even further, which unlocks all of the uh, nutrients within. And that means that plants can start to take them up in its roots and use those nutrients to grow. And so that's a big part of what soil is. It's like a, a nice little substrate, a medium for holding nutrients. And then the whole thing is actually held together itself even further by the roots that the plants that grow in the soil spread out and stabilize too. So I think one of the things, we've just hit upon one of the reasons I love soil so much. It's harmonious Mm -hmm. and um, symbiotic. Like everything living in the soil almost is involved in keeping everything else going and alive. It's like part of a really beautiful, complete system.
1: Yeah, and that's why, you know, we always make a big deal, and science makes a big deal out of the disruption of this, and not just this process but all earth processes. Yeah. One little tiny thing will lead to another little tiny thing and before you know it you got you got issues on your hands. Yeah, you do
0: for sure. You you can't let it get out of whack. Luckily from what I found I started to get into um into like long care and stuff like that. It's I my knew new this thing. would happen
1: at some point. <laughs> and, you made um, fun of me years ago, and I was like, you just wait.
0: Yeah, it's true. It's true. And I've learned <laughs> not to flood my lawn with a quarter inch of um, of water. But um, the, the best fertilizer and aeration that I found is just basically feeding m- microbes to your lawn. Like yeah. you don't need to like go – dig holes and core plugs in in your lawn, just if you add the right kind of microbes to your lawn, all of that will just kind of turn it into this healthy soil beneath it on its own, which I just love because it's just spraying microbes onto the ground. What's more beautiful than that?
1: <laughs> well, we've gone the opposite. We have zero grass now, basically. Oh, I know, I know. You just love it to just rub kept... my face in that, but still. No, it just kept going more and more, and it got smaller and smaller. To the point where I was like, why am I holding on to this tiny little patch of grass?
0: Why do I even have a weed whacker at this point? (laughs) I know. I I haven't used a weed whacker in two years. It's great. That's awesome. I've got a big old honking gas-powered lawnmower even, too. So I'm basically going the exact opposite direction as you. (laughs) Do you have a rider now? No, no, no. It's not that big. It's not that big. (laughs) No. Yeah, it's a rider. It runs on, like, the (laughs) tier of baby deer.
1: (laughs) That's what John Deere means. Yeah. So, um, if you're talking soil, you need to talk soil horizons. And, you know, we'll get to sort of the list of the different horizons here in a few minutes. But mm-hmm. soil horizons are these horizontal levels, these striations that, you know, if you look at, like, if you go to any science center, they'll probably have some kind of cool um, piece of glass with – uh a frame, and you have soil in there, and they have little lines drawn, yeah, to sure. mark these different soil horizons because soil is not all the same from the the very top of the topsoil down three feet. It gets very different, and you want space in there, you want air in there, uh, you want to have uh, water to be able to travel through there. Right. I think they say if you want like really good soil, should be about fifty percent, just fifty percent soil, and then fifty percent just space for air and water.
0: Yeah, exactly. And then you want about half of those spaces to be filled with water. So, you got about 50% soil, 25% air pockets, 25% water-filled pores. That's ideal for sure. And that's Yeah. And the the reason the way that you get those those pores and those pockets and everything is because there's different types of soil there's different shapes of soil Um, and there's different sizes of soil like we said you know there's sand but there's also silt and there's also and get ready for your socks to be not clean off your feet there's also clay which clay whenever I think of clay it's like a big hunk of something that I'm like having to dig through to plant a plant Mm -hmm. and it's enormous but it turns out that clay is actually the finest Uh, smallest type of soil. And it's so fine that it compacts together into these large aggregate pieces of clay that we think of when we think of clay. But that's actually huge, uh, enormous chunks of extraordinarily tiny uh, pieces of dirt of soil that are so small, you can only see them with an electron microscope if you want to look at them individually.
1: Yeah, and clay is important. It's all part of the the mix that we'll talk about mm-hmm. uh, here in a minute. But, you know, if you start off with just a, a barren rock landscape, there's a very smart lady. Who who did this one? Was this uh, I
0: think the Grabster helped us out with this. Was this the Grabster? Yeah.
1: Um, <clears throat> he must have interviewed Dr. Caitlin hicks uh who's an assistant professor of biological sciences at Dartmouth. Yeah. And she said, you know, if you start off— We've seen it happen. If you start off with just bedrock, <laughs> in about a hundred years, you could probably grow a tree there. In the happen. soil that you would get.
0: Seen it happen a million times. Hundred years. That's all you need. <laughs> right. And well, the reason why it can happen so fast is because some plants are early colonizers and they can grow in just a little bit of you know soil, just a little bit of fine rock. Um, and as long as there's, like, nutrients and water coming to it, it's it's fine. It doesn't need a big thing of, like, topsoil or potting soil. It can make do like that. And then once those plants start to die, they start to decompose, and then it really kicks off. So, yeah, you can have, like, soil, a couple of horizons of soil in 100 years if you're really boogieing.
1: All right, should we boogie on down and take a break? Yeah, let's. Let's get our hands dirty, and we'll come back and we'll talk about these horizons right after this.
0: Okay, Chuck, Horizons. And speaking of Horizons, I think there was a Disney World ride or an Epcot Center ride called Horizons or something like that. And there was this group of people who infiltrated it. They figured out how to get basically behind the scenes and would hang out there for like entire weekends and like hide during the regular hours and then just hang out like they were part of the set um, after hours. After was the it park about soil? Closed. No. It was about future life, like what life was going to be like in the future. It was really cool. Oh, sure. But the upshot of all this is that they documented the whole thing with pictures. And it's somewhere oh, cool. on the internet. I can't remember where. But I'm pretty sure it was called Horizons. But it's a closed-down Epcot ride where a bunch of people documented it in the early 90s just with cool pictures of it. So check it out. And that's probably why they closed it down. I don't remember why they closed it down or what it became, but I think it's not nearly as cool. I never got to ride it, but seeing those pictures made me wish I, I'd been able to go.
1: <laughs> so here are a bunch of the horizons. When you, If you're talking about pedology, which is the study of soil, mm-hmm. uh, it's a bit of an unfortunate name. Sure. Um, but we're going to talk about horizons, not the event horizon, not the gateway to hell itself.
0: No, the chaos and disorder of unparalleled mm-hmm. Horribleness. Did you see that? Loved it. Yeah, yeah, it was pretty good, huh? Yeah. When's the last time you
1: saw it? Probably when it came out. I don't think I ever repeated that one.
0: Mm, I saw it in the last couple of years, and it holds up. Not I've bad. seen it several times since it came out, and it's it's a really genuinely good horror movie. Yeah, I agree. I also saw uh, Solaris too recently, and that's a really great movie too.
1: The Russian version or the no, Clooney? I
0: have still never seen the Russian version. I've seen the Soderbergh version.
1: Yeah, it was good. I would recommend the Tarkovsky. It's a bit of a grind, but... Worth uh, it? Sure. His movies are all worth it, but they're just, you know, they're tough. You don't If you're sleepy, don't try it.
0: Okay, okay. <laughs> it's like the Irishman, but Russian and in space.
1: And good. Okay. <laughs> um, so, the O Horizon, these are some of the different horizons. The O Horizon is that, like, not even topsoil yet. It's... The leaves that blow off of trees and are sitting sort of on top. Yeah. That counts as the O horizon.
0: They're basically the, the things that are in the initial state of decomposition not right on top of the dirt. Yeah, exactly. Underneath that then is the A horizon. So this makes zero sense already because we went from mm. O to A. Yeah, none of this makes sense. The A horizon um, is what we would consider like topsoil. Um it has most of the organic matter that's really begun to decompose and break down into smaller and smaller bits and it's usually kind of dark in color this is where the highest concentration of minerals are and this is also where you're going to find the um the roots of plants too because they really like those those minerals and nutrients
1: yeah and by the way when i said this makes no sense i'm sure an earth scientist is going to say guys it makes perfect sense yeah and and here's why <laughs> Uh, you have the E-horizon next, which stands for alluviated horizon. Mm-hmm. And that's where you've got this water draining down. And those minerals that you were talking about in the A-horizon, it's leaching those minerals and all that stuff out. And you've got sort of this light-colored soil in its wake.
0: Right. Um, that is not a common, or I shouldn't say common. It's You're not going to find that in every um, soil sample that you take. Right. Uh, it, it's usually a product of, say, like um, a, a, a patch on like a hilltop where it's it like the dirt's in place, but all the nutrients have been leached out over time. So anytime you just dig with the shovel into some dirt, you're not necessarily going to find an e-horizon.
1: Yeah. And we should say that for all this stuff, it's all going to vary according to where you are mm-hmm. and what kind of rain and flooding and, uh, and drainage that you have and stuff like that.
0: Mm-hmm. What's next, Chuck?
1: You got the B horizon. That's the subsoil. And this is where you finally get down to some of the finer uh, particles. And you've got like a lot of silt, mm-hmm. a lot of clay. Uh, it's it's You're starting to get down to the good stuff at this point.
0: And all this makes sense, too, if you think about it. Like um, when the water, when rainwater trickles down through the soil and percolates, it, it's far easier for it to Bring with it smaller and smaller particles. So, the further it travels, the further or the smaller the particles you're going to find going down with it. So, you've got your bigger particles, your looser, coarser bigger topsoil. Then you've got the subsoil, which is a little tighter together. And then in, that, um, in the B horizon, in the subsoil, you've got compacted, that's where you're going to hit like your clay layer. Because again, yeah. clay's made up of those tiniest little particles that have been brought all the way down as far as it can go with the water that's percolated.
1: That's right. And it's much more stable than topsoil as well.
0: For sure. Sometimes it's too stable and you, like water in roots can't really penetrate it.
1: Yes, or shovels. It can in be Georgia.
0: It, it can be a problem, child. As far as yes. soil, <laughs> soil horizons go.
1: You know my story when I was trying to dig my uh, fence post holes for my privacy fence years ago was mm-hmm. I, I rented an, a two man auger, a two person auger, and it just spun. It, it just it <laughs> compacted the clay even more. It did not break it up at all. It spun it like a potter's wheel. <laughs> nice. Did you go? Give me some clay. Oh wait. It was bad.
0: <laughs> Did you get it? That was a pottery joke, but it tied into your problem. That was I maybe it, the smartest joke it, I've God. ever made in my life. <laughs> oh well, no wonder I didn't get it. <laughs>
1: yeah. Uh and, and I think I mentioned this on the show before. If you if you do have that kind of problem, if you're going to plant and you have really tough clay that you're trying to get through, or rock for that matter, mm-hmm. uh get a San Angelo tool, which is that big heavy spike. Um, that you see at the hardware store—that's oh you know, yeah, six feet long, has mm-hmm. a pointy end on one side and a flat head on the other, and weighs like you know twenty pounds or something.
0: Yeah, I never knew what they were called. They look like sharp, pointing lightning rods, basically, right?
1: Yeah, I mean, you just—it's it, backbreaking, but if you force that thing into the ground as hard as you can and just wiggle it back and forth uh-huh. a million times, and then you you're hit going to be able to. Well, you're going to be able to break up anything, basically.
0: But, and then you hit it with the auger or, or post hole diggers?
1: Uh, no, I mean, the auger was useless at that point. You just loosen yeah. and use a shovel.
0: Did you get your money back and say, this auger is worth nothing? No,
1: because they would say, welcome to Georgia, bang. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's the state slogan. And not all over Georgia, but particularly where we are, like up in the mountains and stuff, it can get, it can the soil is very rich and very uh, pliable. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's good stuff.
0: As long as you don't hit the granite underneath.
1: Which can happen.
0: Yeah, as a matter of fact, um, because those, those pieces of granite that you hit as you get closer and closer to the Appalachians further north in Georgia, that's bedrock. That's like the outermost rock of the Earth's crust, right? So you're actually touching the Earth. It's almost like the soil that builds up on top of the bedrock is... I don't know dander maybe and the bedrock <laughs> is really the earth's outer skin so you're touching the earth's skin when you're touching bedrock which can yeah. which can poke through the ground every once in a while is what we call rock outcroppings
1: yeah and so as far as the horizon levels go just above the bedrock I don't think we mentioned the sea horizon uh that is also rock but that's rock that Um, has weathered down some but didn't quite make it to soil level weathering.
0: Right, because remember, some plants can come in and colonize that rock and pretty quickly start building up soil, and if that rock beneath isn't exposed to that weathering process from wind and freeze-thaw and all that stuff, it's never going to get broken down. Right. It's just going to be hard on the old auger.
1: (laughs) Uh, and then the bedrock, and then you've got what's called hard pan. Mm-hmm. And these are mineral deposits that, I mean, this stuff, I, I don't know. I guess it's harder than bedrock. It just sounds like no. nothing will gr- will grow and there's no chance for anything to permeate it.
0: Yeah, and hard pan the, is not under bedrock. Bedrock's as low as it gets before you, like that's the earth's crust. Hard pan is just kind of, I think he just kind of tossed that on where it's like, this is, this is another, it's like a e horizon like an alluviated horizon. You're not going to find it everywhere. When you do, you'll know it because it's very hard to dig through and there can be streaks of it within another, you know, soil system um, or of different horizon layers. Uh, and you just don't want anything to do with that. Neither do plants either. It's basically impermeable as far as water and roots and shovels yeah, go.
1: no good. No. Uh, another term that I think is really just cute is uh, parent material. Mm -hmm. And that doesn't mean whether or not you would be a good papa or a good mama (laughs) to a human child. Parent material is the type of rock that you started out with or the type of mineral that you started out with millions of years ago that was weathered down there uh, to create what kind of soil you've got. And depending on where you live and what was there, hundreds of thousands or millions of years before you, you're going to have much different kind of soil than uh, maybe another place in the world.
0: Yeah. Like if it started out as igneous rock from a lava flow, that's going to be different kind of, it's going to produce a different soil from, you know, sedimentary rock that was weathered down from a granite outcropping by a river. It's just different soil, but it can also come about in different ways. Like like that rock outcropping that was worn down by a river and just kind of sunk further and further into the ground and was built up atop of it, soil layers were. That would be called residual, where it's developed in place. There's also transported, where it could be moved by like ice, like a glacier pushing soil from one place to another. Sure. Um, And then there's also cumulose, which is basically like peat, where organic material is basically suspended in... In suspended animation by water, it's uh, it's prevented from full decomposition. That's right. Those are the kinds of parents that soil can have.
1: <laughs> so let's talk about the, the soil texture triangle. Okay. This is where it gets pretty cool because if you're talking soil, and I, and I think people should start using the word soil more than dirt because I just think it's more evocative of what you're really talking about. I think dirt is kind of reductive.
0: I saw a dude who is like a soil sciences professor explain that to him, at least, dirt is like dead soil. Soil is like living, breathing. You know, it's almost like a, it's a symbiotic organism formed by the, by all these different other bits of life working together. Whereas dirt's just like dead stuff that maybe will become soil one day.
1: If it behaves itself. Right.
0: If it if it plays its cards right.
1: <laughs> so this texture triangle, uh, if you're talking soil, is a mixture, and this is all soil, of uh, sand, silt, and clay. Sand, uh, we it's a really good podcast episode on it, I, I think we did. Mm-hmm. Um, that is the most coarse, which is funny to think about because sand seems super, super fine. Yeah. Uh, but when compared to silt, uh, I think sand is... Uh, 2 to 0.05 millimeters in diameter compared to silt, which is 0.05 to 0.002. And then, like you mentioned earlier, it's hard to wrap your head around, but clay is a really, really fine kind of soil. Yeah. Uh, 0.002 millimeters in diameter. And you got to get that microscope out if you want to take a look at it.
0: Yeah, and because the, the the different sizes, when they're put up against one another, if you've got a bunch of sand... The, the pores in between the grains of sand are going to be really big, which is why beaches don't have a lot of plant life growing on them because water just drains right through them and it's very difficult to keep organic matter suspended within it, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, silt, it gets a little easier, a lot easier because the from what I saw, the the pores in between silt are basically ideal, they're just big enough that they drain really well, but they also can hold some water. And then clay, because the, the, the pieces are so close together, the pores between them are so small that they hold a lot of water and they, they basically seal off the water's escape. So clay can either prevent water from coming in or it can hold it in and, and drown things. Either way, it's not necessarily very good for roots. Super compacted clay.
1: Yeah, you want a nice mix, and it doesn't all have to. You know, it depends on what you want to do and what you're working with, but mm-hmm. it doesn't have to be the exact same mix either. Um, I'm sure there are ideal versions, but uh, depending on where you are, you can only do so much with your soil. Like you can't make an entire farm uh, something that it's not. You can augment it <laughs> and help it out, but you're kind of working with what you got to a certain degree. Yeah. Um, I think one of the cool things from this research was that. You know, if you see a farmer in a movie bend down in that, the scene that's in every movie about a farmer, when they grab that soil in their hand mm-hmm. and they look at it and twist it between their fingers and then let it fall gently out of their hand onto the ground, Yeah, not only does that make for a nice movie moment, but that's real deal stuff. If you're a, a pro <laughs> farmer or a soil scientist, you can tell exactly what's going on with that soil by how it clumps in your hand. How it moves in your hand, how it holds together, what shape it is. Right. Uh, so it's not just a sort of a BS thing you see in movies. No, you can also run a lab test to figure out what the, what right, the ratios boy. are. Right.
0: Yeah. Hey, college boy, <laughs> you need to get yourself a farmer um, with yeah, hands. But either way, right. But if you if you um you it, there is an ideal combination between it depending on what you're trying to do for sure. Um, you don't want it too clay, you don't want it too sandy, you don't want it, although I don't know, I think you do kind of want everything to be kind of silty, but um, where they interact is going to going to describe what kind of dirt you're dealing with. And there are things you can do, too, there's a reason for understanding that, because you can say, oh, if I add this, if I, if I bury a bunch of grass clippings, it's going to turn this clay right. into more silt, um, and everything's going to just jump for joy from that point on.
1: Yeah and and if you're a home gardener uh you can certainly manipulate your yard or any uh potted soil that you have you can amend all that stuff till you get exactly what you need mm-hmm. um and then once you have it in a good place there's upkeep but it's it's not like you just have to do it once but you have to do it once really really well and then just sort of keep that good mix going.
0: Yeah, and then you can just go get one of these things that you you hook onto the end of your hose and spray it once in a while with some microbes and sit back and watch everything start Smoke coming your cigar. <laughs> yep, it's exactly right. Made out of deer hide. Oh, God. <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't burn very well. It's kind of noxious smelling, but it <laughs> yeah. really makes a point, you know? Uh,
1: I know we mentioned regolith and... I want to say terraforming and other episodes. Mm -hmm. But uh, this, sometimes people say this as a word for soil, but it's really much more than that. It's kind of like anything on top of the bedrock basically can be called regolith. And that's not, and we mentioned terraforming because uh, if you talk about the moon or Mars, uh, you talk about regolith as well and whether or not we could grow stuff there, which apparently we could.
0: Um, yeah, if we added the right nutrients and water, it would it would hold, which is essentially all it is at that point. It's like what that that soil sciences guy was saying that it's um, it's uh, it's it's dirt, not soil. It's dirt because it doesn't have anything living. But you can add that stuff to it as needed, and right? Make Mars great again. <laughs> oh God! <laughs> so you want to talk about the the carbon cycle?
1: Yeah, what is, I mean, does carbon have anything to do with the Earth? No,
0: it has nothing <laughs> at all to do with it. Um, <laughs> but actually, it has quite a bit to do with it, right? So, so um, carbon is essentially the building block for life. And there's a big cycle of carbon moving through the environment. There's a lot of it in the atmosphere in the form of CO2 and the atmosphere itself forms what's known as a carbon sink, which if you haven't been paying attention the last few decades, one of the reasons that climate change is happening is because we've been um, overwhelming that that carbon sink in the atmosphere by burning fossil fuels and releasing a lot of carbon dioxide that had been sequestered in the ground, which leads us to this, this point that plants and soil help lock carbon in so that in addition to the atmosphere being a carbon sink, Soil is also a really major carbon sink, too.
1: Yeah, and uh, <laughs>
0: you were thinking about agreeing with that or not?
1: No, 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 I totally agree with it. But I mean, it's kind of like when you know the Amazon rainforest caught on fire.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, that's it's almost like you are getting a double whammy there in yeah, badness.
0: Or, or like even just cutting the Amazon down to to grow crops there too. Like you are you are creating quite a bit of harm even without burning it down, because all those trees are really good at sequestering carbon dioxide from the air and, and creating a carbon sink in the ground. But then also, it, we'll find out later, when you till the ground, a lot of that carbon that's been trapped under there uh, and will stay that way for a thousand or so years is suddenly released just by tilling it. So there's a, basically the, the the main point I would like everybody to take away from this entire uh, episode maybe our entire podcast, Chuck, is leave the rainforests alone. Just sure. stop messing with the rainforest because it's really screwing things up in ways that we are yet to fully realize.
1: Yeah. Agreed.
0: Okay. That was my soapbox.
1: That's you and Don Henley, man. Arm in arm. Yes. <laughs> he's, he's a big rainforest guy, you know.
0: Well, we're we're always chatting it up about the rainforest. I got a lot <laughs> of my ideas from him. <laughs>
1: You know, thanks to uh, Stuff You Should Know listener Clayton Janes, uh, who is a a guitar—well, I'm I'm not going to say exactly what he does, but he he worked on this last tour for the Eagles and invited Emily and I down before the show. Oh, yeah? And I got to, like, touch Don Henley's drum kit Mm. and Joe Walsh's guitars. I remember you saying that. And Joe Walsh.
0: Because he happened to be standing next to his (laughs) guitars at the same time. Pretty cool, man. You were like, I'm uh, sorry. I'm sorry. He's like, It's okay. (laughs) Life's been good to me so far. Something's wrong with me today, man. (laughs) Something's bad wrong.
1: All right. So let's talk about carbon dioxide um, for a second here because plants draw that in from the atmosphere and then eventually they're going to break that down because, uh, you know, photosynthesis happens and they use that carbon to build up that plant. We're talking about the roots, the leaves, the stems. uh, carbon plays a big part in that. But eventually, like I said earlier, that plant's going to die uh, mm-hmm. or leaves just fall from a tree or whatever. And that carbon is locked inside that leaf or that dead plant on the ground that you stepped on.
0: Right, exactly. So um, what's great about this is that plant used that carbon and when it died, it died with that carbon and lo- lo- it was locked in, like you said. But it, it it's able to be used by other plants that come along, which is part of that whole, like, Beautiful system that just works so intricately well Mm -hmm. because to unlock that carbon, you have—that's where all that life that lives in the soil comes along and uh, becomes extremely important because they break that stuff down and and decompose it, depending on whether you're talking about bugs that chew up leaf litter— Um, into smaller and smaller pieces, which makes it easier for microbes to break down more quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, The microbes themselves get eaten, and that carbon that was locked in the plant is suddenly unlocked and available in the soil for other plants to take up through their roots and build their own structures and use for photosynthesis, too. It's it's the circle of life.
1: Right. Or it doesn't use it all, and some of that carbon is then released back into the atmosphere. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, then we get to the, the, the humus. And I think we might have talked about this. Surely we did in composting. Yes, we and definitely m- did. Maybe did, we did one in earthworms, right?
0: Yep. I think We so. talked about it in earthworms. We talked about um, in permaculture, I believe. Yeah. We may have also talked about it in desertification and droughts.
1: Maybe. Right. Man, we've done a lot of good are, earth so, science.
0: That was a good one.
1: That was good. So humus is that um, it's basically if you compost something, years mm-hmm. later, you, you're going to finally get down to humus. It's what's left over after all that snacking is done. Uh, and, it's, it's, you know, if you have a home composter, don't think that you have humus after a couple of months of doing a really good job composting because it takes, like, many years to become humus.
0: Yeah, um, and like it's just a very small percentage of the stuff you compost will break down into humus because apparently the precursor of humus is proteins and most compost is made up of carbohydrates, plant materials or carbs, right? Yeah. Um, Yeah, that's right. Um, So, when it breaks down, this humus is – it's almost like a – some soil scientists apparently consider humus a third state of life where it's not just dead, it's very dead. Decomposition is not really happening anymore. But there's a lot of minerals kind of locked in there, inorganic materials. Um, But the thing is, is you want humus. The more humus you have, the more lively and life-affirming your soil is. Um, It's like eat, pray, and love down there, you know? Um, Yeah. Because humus forms an ideal house for all that other life to live in. It's like exactly what is needed for the other organisms that make soil alive in this um, symbiotic network. That's what they want is humus. Um, and and it's, it's extraordinarily important stuff, but we don't fully understand why it doesn't necessarily keep breaking down after a point.
1: Yeah, it's it's very dark. It's like black, basically. It's very spongy. Um, it has great water retention. It can hold ninety percent of its weight in water, mm-hmm. uh, and is sort of like the bond. It's like the cement that helps. You know, when you clump that soil together in your hand and it stays together, you can thank humus for that.
0: Yeah, as a matter of fact, you should thank humus out loud when you when you, <laughs> you squeeze should. some soil in your hand. You totally should. Thank you, humus. <laughs> So it's like you said like humus holds the stuff together but it also creates those air pockets or those gaps that are so important in um in healthy soil right it keeps things from getting sticking too close together yet it also keeps it in aggregations or aggregates right so it's really yeah. weird if you really stop and think about it it holds things together but not too much together it kind of holds them together at just the right distance so that you have that ideal mixture of 50% soil, 50% um, gaps, and then 25% of those gaps are, you know, can hold water moisture.
1: Yeah, and you've got to have that that right mix because uh, too much sand is not able to hold any water. Like mm-hmm. you mentioned, if you go to the beach, you can just see this in action. Yeah. Um, you've got to have some of that clay, though, uh, because that's the smallest one. And it's uh, those little micropores. They're going to, it has what's called capillary action. That's Mm -hmm. uh, adhesion and surface tension mixed together in a bag, basically. Yeah. And that's super, super strong. And if you have clay in your soil, it's going to hold that water. And it'll even draw water up from the water table and say, here you go. Go out and feed.
0: Yeah, I saw yet another soil sciences professor talk about capillary action. And he surprised me because he showed that, um, sand has the least amount of capillary action. There's some. You know how like when you're digging into the sand, it, right before you get to the, to the water beneath it, it's wet. That's because the sand's still been wicking some water up through those gaps. Um, and, but rather than clay being the, the, the strongest with capillary action or the best for soil, I should say, um, it's actually silt. He had like three tubes: silt, sand, and clay, all next to each other. And the silt one just rocked the other two for how far it had wicked water up this tube. So apparently, that's the ideal. Silt is just as good as it gets, is is from what I can tell.
1: You're on Team Silt.
0: I am super Team Silt <laughs> from now and forever.
1: Uh, all right, I think we should take another break, perhaps. Yep. And we'll talk about what all's living down there in that soil and what this all has to do with uh, climate change right after this. talked about uh, early on things living in the soil. Um, mm-hmm. I know we, it's, it's easy to think about um, little microbes and bacteria and things in soil because we know it's just rife with that stuff. Right. But you can't ignore the big things too. There are little <laughs> moles that live in the soil. There are prairie dogs. There are lizards. There are snakes. Um, all this stuff, every, every like kind of larger animal disrupts the soil but that's a good word in this case. You want that soil disrupted because it's redistributing nutrients. Mm-hmm. It's You know you want them peeing and pooping in that stuff and mixing yeah. all that stuff in. Yeah. And you've got this sort of larger, small to larger animal system acting as little composters along the way.
0: Yeah, and, and they're actually also mechanically mixing the soil. Like, you don't want your soil to just be big, medium, small. You want it to be fairly mixed together um, because big is just too the, the, the um, gaps between are too big and small. The gaps between are too small. You want them mixed well. And so like an earthworm burrowing actually is mixing the, the earth together. Gophers apparently mix together something like 1,800 cubic meters per square pl- kilometer every year. That's a tremendous amount of soil mixing. And they're, they, it's, they're doing it for free, basically.
1: Yeah, and that's when they're getting along. Like, you want to really mix up some soil, you get a gopher rumble. Sure, right. Happening. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) It can get ugly, but your soil is going to be (laughs) super mixed afterwards. Oh, man, it's going to be
0: fantastic. Plus, you can roll cigars out of their hides, the hide (laughs) of the loser.
1: (laughs) Oh, boy. You've also got spiders. You've got uh, little scorpions. Um, You've got centipedes. You've got millipedes. You've got termites. Uh, You have uh, roaches, unfortunately. Uh, I think right here it says, in a sample of one square foot of two-inch soil in the forest, 200 species of mites alone.
0: Yeah, that, I, pretty impressive. I've got one even better than that, right? Let's go down in order of magnitude or so.
1: Oh, I know where you're headed.
0: So the microbes in the soil are so abundant and so prevalent, apparently a teaspoon of soil has more microbes in it. Uh, microbes is another pronunciation. <laughs> um Then there are than <laughs> there are people on Earth, in one teaspoon of soil, right? That's amazing. And all these little microbes are bacteria, there's viruses, there's um, there's fungi. All of these mi- all this microbial life are like the the last the last layer of decomposition. But they do even a lot more than just decompose dying things. Um, there's there's a, a a function of fungus that we're just now starting to wrap our heads around called um, mycorrhizae, which is a symbiotic relationship. So so soil itself is a symbiotic relationship. This is a symbiotic relationship within the symbiotic relationship where fungus basically says, hey, roots, I like what you're doing there above me. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm going to hang out around you and maybe grow my own system of roots out of fungus, me, that connects to your roots but also goes through the ground and connects to other roots, too. It's amazing. And I'm going to take up, you know, nutrients from the soil and help you accept them into your roots, maybe bring you some water here or there. And I'm going to let you communicate with other plants through your roots, through me, to the roots of the other plant, too. so amazing. So it's like if you look at um, a mycorrhizae, if you pull up like a plant, it it has like this thin, almost lung-like film around it. That's the fungus that's, it's like a a root system around the root system made up of fungus, and we're just starting to understand this, and it's just beautiful to know that it it exists like that. It's the fungus among us. It is, and there's actually humongous fungus among us, isn't there?
1: Yeah, so um, what you were talking about is a mutualist. There are kind of three kinds of fungus, Mm -hmm. and I love that they call it a mutualist. It's a great name for that, uh, the symbiotic relationship. There's it's also the one a good that good
0: name for like neo folk, sure. Okay,
1: yeah, why not? <laughs> why not get it? Get a tweed vest and a jaw harp and have have a good time. Okay, I just got a jaw harp in the mail. By the way,
0: is that the one that has the shoulder mounts?
1: No, the jaw harp is the twangy thing you put in your mouth. Oh, <laughs> gotcha. In That's fact, to right. have it here, if you want me to go get it, I, I would love too. you to go get it.
0: I think we'll wait. <laughs> uh,
1: the fungus that eats decaying matter uh, is called a saprophyte. Then you've got your mutualist, and then you've got an actual parasitic fungus. Those are the jerks of the of the forest world. But you were talking about the humongous fungus. I, I know. I feel like we've talked about this at some point
0: in Pando. The Pando episode. was it in
1: Pando? Yeah. Okay, I thought it might be um, in Malheur National Forest. Um, there is something called Genet D, and a big network of uh, fungi is a Genet. And Genet D is the humongous fungus. It's considered the largest living individual on Earth, 2,000 acres worth. Yeah. Apparently, uh, it's all connected.
0: Yeah, and it was not. It's the biggest by area, I think. And Pando is right. the biggest by mass. Like if you weighed Pando, it would weigh more. Totally. But this one was still covers a lot bigger area. But it's just one big single organism, and it is. It's underground and it sucks onto um, onto roots. And actually, they found it because there was a bunch of dead trees, and they're like, "What's going on here?" And they discovered that it was this one a, um, a fungus that, um, was killing off trees because it can be one of those jerk kinds, the, um, the parasitic parasitic fungus. What are they called? Just parasitic fungus? There's not a great name for them? Uh, no. Parasitic fungus. But the ones that, so they live in the soil. No one likes them. They're, they're, they're considered jerks, like you said. Um, the ones that everybody likes are the mutualists or the saprophytes, which eat decaying matter. And then sometimes they eat one another and all this stuff, just the, the, I don't want to say the point of it, because who knows if there even is a point. But if there is a point, it is that um, th- that nutrients that get used by living things and locked into the living things when they die get unlocked so that other things can use them.
1: All right. So do you want to talk about the nitrogen cycle?
0: Yeah, because, I mean, that's another thing that can get locked and unlocked thanks to these organisms and their symbiosis. Um, nitrogen is extremely important to plants. They use it to make chlorophyll. They use it to make some of their um, proteins and structures. Um, but it's it, and there's, it's super abundant in the atmosphere and the air. But not all plants are really good at unlocking it. Um, not many, actually. Which is right, which is why you need some plants called nitrogen fixers to come along, and I think legumes are a really good example of this, In like alfalfa, peanuts, you know, those things. Um, And they can take it out of the air and turn it into a usable form. And they actually do that, I saw, not on their own accord. They have to become infected by a bacteria called rhizobium. And it's actually the infection from rhizobium that alters the plant to make it so that it can take nitrogen out of the air and deposit it in its roots for storage.
1: Yeah, most plants can't do that. They have to draw it from the soil around them. Right. And, you know, we we mentioned the balance and nature that we always are seeking, that homeostasis. Uh, What you would like is a balance between these nitrogen fixers and dead plants adding nitrogen into the soil, and then also those plants that are drawing that soil out. Like, you want Mm -hmm. that all to sort of balance out together.
0: Right, exactly. And again, it's because there's help from bacteria helping fix nitrogen and nodules on the on the roots that other plants can come along and use in a fix, or what's called a fixed form. So it's fixed nitrogen. Like you can have, um, say, a glass of seawater and you're really thirsty, but you can't drink it because it's not in a usable form, even though it's still water. But if you run it through a reverse osmosis filter and desalinate it, now it's usable water. So you can think of nitrogen fixing as like, the the Earth's version of reverse osmosis for nitrogen converting it into a usable form for plants. The 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 thing is is we kinda talked about it before, um, and you just hit upon it. There's like a, a natural cycle, a natural process to all this, which things like agriculture especially, um, has really kind of disrupted. And even yeah. after the research that's been produced over time, we're still we're either being, like, willfully ignorant or still figuring it out or people are still trying to get the word out. I don't know what the issue is. Um, if it's just too expensive to do it right, I don't know. Um, I'll have to go back and listen to our perm- permaculture episode again. But one of the ways, like you said, that we we disrupt this natural cycle or the nitrogen cycle in particular is by not um, planting things like cover plants that are nitrogen fixers to replenish the soil. Instead, we use factory-made fertilizer, which is just fixed nitrogen itself, um, to replenish the soil, which is much harsher and can have um, all sorts of uh, cascading negative effects on the surrounding environment as well.
1: Yeah, because if you're doing a, a major agriculture uh, job and you're pulling that nitrogen out, you've got to just artificially put it back in, and that's all fertilizer is. Right. Because you're feeding that manure or... Whatever fertilizer you're using, manure has a lot of nitrogen. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's used as a fertilizer, but you're just pumping it back into the soil. Uh, there's a great documentary that's called, I think, Big Little Farm. Maybe I've not heard of that a- one. About this couple who, you know, dropped out and started their own farm, but started a farm that they wanted to do right and to be in balance, like naturally uh, with itself. It's really good and daunting and inspiring all at once
0: it's it's cool it sounds a bit like um the movie all of me where lily tomlin takes over steve martin's body and they have (laughs) to learn to coexist together kind of harmoniously and i think they do at the end if i remember
1: correctly it's not big little farm biggest the biggest little farm is what it is in texas uh (laughs) no that's a burt reynolds movie right oh okay and you said this is a documentary yeah, Biggest Little Farm. It's really good. You should check it out, people. Okay.
0: Okay. Um, well, people should check out all of me, too, if you ask me. Um, the thing is, Chuck, is when you're talking about nitrogen fixing and say, like, okay, well, farmers should just grow alfalfa, and then whatever, say, if you harvest corn or, or something like that, you till it into the grass, whatever's left over after you've harvested the corn— you till it into the ground, I mean. And that buried stuff actually provides a lot of food for all of those microbial life and um, earthworms and all that stuff. So they actually leave the roots of your plants alone. That's great. But even doing that requires more care than you would think. Because if we go back to humus, remember humus is a really great way to lock in carbon for hundreds or thousands of years, but we're finding that it can be fairly easily disturbed by agricultural practices like tilling. And that once you disturb it, all of a sudden it's like, oh yeah, well, I'm done. I'm out. If you're not going to appreciate me, I'm not going to hold on to your carbon anymore. And it starts to release it. So we're finding that agricultural practices like um, tilling are actually having a contribution and an impact to climate change as well.
1: Yeah, and it's not uh, – and I think this came from the same interview with uh, the professor, assistant professor. Um, she's saying it's not like it's the same as the burning of fossil fuels. Um, there was an estimate is that soils have lost 120 uh, PG – what does that stand for? Pedagrams. Pe- uh, yeah. petagrams of carbon since we've been – since the dawn of agriculture basically – and that since 1751, uh, fossil fuel burning has had a cumulative total of over 400 petagrams. So it's not on par, but it is, you know, something to think about. And especially right. when you're talking about permafrost and, you know, that's why we talk about when uh, climate change is sort of like this vicious cycle mm-hmm. where things are heating up and then uh, – Ice caps are melting and when that stuff melts, that's releasing this permafrost soil that has been stored, you know, stored carbon for thousands and thousands of years, right. all of a sudden released back up into the atmosphere.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, um because humus is most stable as a carbon sink when it's cold. So if it's so cold that it's been frozen for years, um it's very stable. But yeah, as climate change warms it up that starts to get released. And that is a problem. I mean, yes, 120 petagrams over the last nine, ten thousand 10,000 years. It doesn't seem like much, but we're getting to the point now where every little bit counts. And I think as part of the Paris Climate Agreement, you can um, count your uh, carbon sinks, like the kind of soil you have, against your output to to show whatever reduction you're working on. So it does count. It is taken into account. It's just nothing like fossil fuels. But it is an important component, it seems like.
1: Yeah, so basically, you know, that's what they did in Biggest Little Farm is get back to basics of the dawn of agriculture when they practice really sound soil management um, for the most part, mm-hmm. uh, tilling, you know, only what needs to be tilled, Don't go super deep or super wide if you don't need to. That ground cover that you were talking about shades that soil. And don't burn. And this is one of the big problems with big ag is burning plant waste. Yeah. Uh, You don't want to do that. You want to bury that stuff and put it back into the earth.
0: Yep. Put it back into the earth, everybody, because the life down there wants it. That's That's, right. That's the slogan for this one, okay? Agreed. Agreed. So, get out there and get your hands dirty and go feel the soil. And remember to say thank you, humus, as you let it move through your fingers. Okay? Yes. Okay, everybody. And in the meantime, I think, Chuck, it's uh, listener mail.
1: Yeah, this is uh, from a teacher, I think. Mm-hmm. Is this a teacher? I yes. Don't know. Yes. Okay. Biology teacher, okay. appropriately. <laughs> nice. Hey, guys, just listened to the episode on narcolepsy, thought it would help clear up a confusion. ...about the difference between a disease and a disorder. As a high school biology teacher, I had to explain the uh, difference every year. Uh, The difference is subtle, but there is a simple way to remember. A disease is caused by a a pathogen, like a virus or a bacteria. A disorder is a uh, malfunction due to genetics, trauma, chemical toxicity, or other non-living factor. Uh, The lines can become blurred a bit because the disorder can be triggered by a disease... Some cancers are triggered by viruses. Maybe a clearer example is HIV/AIDS. A person can be HIV positive, and if the viral disease is discovered in time and treated, they may never succumb to the disorder that is AIDS, which sets in when the infected person's immune system has been effectively eliminated. Hope this helps the issue. Thanks again. Keep up the good work. And that is from Rich Brusk from Manhattan, Kansas.
0: That's a uh, Manhattan, Kansas. That's right. <laughs> that is a world-class biology teacher, Chuck. Totally. What was his last name? Brusk. With a B? Sure. Thanks, Mr. Brusk from Manhattan, Kansas. Um, we appreciate that, and we appreciate you being a biology teacher and a world-class one at that. Uh, if you want to show off what a world-class person you are, you can get in touch with us, too, like Mr. Brusk did. Uh, you can send us an email. Send it off to stuffpodcast.com.